0: You don't need anybody's permission to get better at your job. You don't need anybody's permission to create great relationships on your job. You don't need anybody else's permission to do your work the way that you think it needs to be done, the best that you know how to do it. And those are all completely under your control and they make a bad job better because now you're not a victim, you're an agent in your life.
1: What happens when you take a designer's mindset of prototyping and apply it to your own life? Can we create a dream job that is meaningful and full of possibility without necessarily changing the job that we have? On today's episode, we have these questions answered by Bill Burnett, the co-author of the number one New York Times best-selling books, Designing Your Life and Designing Your Work Life.
2: Bill is also the Executive Director of the Stanford Design Program, and he co-teaches Designing Your Life, one of the most popular elective courses at Stanford. Fun fact: Bill was also a product leader for Apple's groundbreaking PowerBook business and the original Hasbro Star Wars action figure. Bill and Dave's book has been a valuable resource as both Janice and myself navigated and experimented with our own careers. So you're definitely in for a good one. Hi,
1: this is Janice,
2: and I'm Sarah Anne,
1: and we're your host for Explore This, a podcast for the modern day working
2: professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally.
1: Hi, Bill. We're so excited to have this conversation with you today. Sarah-Ann and I are huge fans of your book, Design Your Life, and we were super stoked to find out about your second book, Designing Your Work Life. So thank you so much for joining us, and we want to welcome you to the Explore This podcast.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to have a conversation with you guys.
1: So for some of our audience who may not yet be familiar with your work, can you share with our audience what inspired you and your co-author to write Designing Your Life and then subsequently Designing Your Work Life?
0: It starts way, way back when I was in college, which I don't know, when dinosaurs roamed the campus, and I was looking for some you know help and advice on how to start my career, have a meaningful career. Dave, the same way, he wanted to solve the energy problem, except nobody wanted to solve the energy problem in those days. And we just didn't get very good advice, you know, from the adults around us. And in general, I think that's the way it is in a lot of the universities and colleges. You know, they're designed to fill students up with information, but they don't really tell them what it's for or how to use what they've learned, you know, in a productive way. So then Zoom all the way forward. I've been teaching at Stanford part-time since 1984 and full-time since 2006 So I've had lots and lots of office hours with lots and lots of really smart students, and they can't figure out how to launch out of the university. And so that was the beginning of the class, Designing Your Life, is just trying to help people figure out how to launch. And then it became Designing Your Life for Your Mid-Career and the people who are in their uh, retirement years or what people are calling their encore or silver years. And so all these people are, are struggling to figure out, how can I do something in my life that feels like it has meaning or purpose or impact? And it just seemed to me, I mean, all I've ever been in my whole life is a designer. When I was right out of school, I started designing toys. I actually worked for the company that started the design Star Wars toys, which is really fun. And then I was designing computers in Silicon Valley and I was working at Apple and other places. And so the only thing I know how to do is design. And it just seemed to me like, well, isn't this problem of coming up with the future of you, which is unknowable, it's a brand new thing, it's never happened. Isn't that just kind of like designing an iPhone? Or And when I was at Apple, we were doing the first laptops. We don't know what it's going to be, but we can figure out how to design this future if we use all the techniques that designers know. So that's where it came from, and it was just a very simple translation. In my job at Stanford, I teach design to young students who are learning to become designers, and they leave and become professional designers, and they work all over the place. They work at Google and Apple and Facebook and Instagram, and you know now we're designing digital things, not just physical things. But it all came from needs. Design starts with empathy. We start with what do people need, and it was really clear that people at all these really major transitions in their lives need some help figuring out how to design the future.
2: Bill, I have to say from what you have just shared, it's evident that people across all ages and generations from the young adults to the mid career and even the soon-to-be-retired and those in their silver ages, they are also in need of continuously designing their lives Um, so we ourselves are extremely glad that we had the chance to read it personally I read about designing your life during my MBA days which was very pivotal because I remember those were the discovery days where I also first heard of the concept of prototyping through your book and where you and your co-author Dave Evans Speak about how we can prototype alternate versions of our lives and our career. And essentially, what is it for, right? It is so that we can create a very meaningful and fulfilling life. Prior to reading your book, I've actually always associated prototyping or essentially this whole idea of design thinking with products. But now we're speaking more about designing our lives. And evidently that is a bigger picture to it. And so, in very practical terms, can you share with us a little bit more about how we can apply this idea of prototyping? In our own lives and career, what does that even mean?
0: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And you're right. You know, normally when people think of design thinking, which is what we call it now, but when I started a long time ago, we used to just call it human-centered design, where you start with empathy, figure out what people need, come up with lots of ideas, match your ideas to the needs. And that's how people design great products. That's how we design products at Apple and other startups I've been in. But if you think about it, it makes sense that um, the future of our lives is like a, a new thing, it's a new product. And how do we figure out something when we can't get any data? Before the iPhone, if you would read all the blogs and everything, the hot phone was the Motorola Razer. You remember the Motorola Razer, the little aluminum phone clamshell thing? Or the Blackberry. Yeah, yeah, flip phone, and the BlackBerry, which had a little keyboard on it. So everybody thought Apple was going to do an aluminum thing with a keyboard on it. And then they come up with this completely new idea of a computer in your hand that you can do everything on. And so the way designers do that is they make lots and lots and lots of prototypes. They build, they're, and they're not building... thing to prove that it works. Same way with your life. Let's say, let's say you are leaving the university or you're in your mid-career and you're thinking, you know, this isn't as exciting as I wanted to be. And I know from talking with both of you that you started out as lawyers and then you decided, well, maybe law law isn't really the thing that I want to use to have impact in the world. So this idea of designing your life isn't so, you know, I'm going to throw away my old career and start something new because that's too risky. That's too scary, right? So how can we try things that we might be curious about without taking a lot of risk? And that's the idea of prototyping. And in this case, a prototype isn't like a product or a thing. A prototype's mostly an experience. Let's say I, I was curious about podcasting and I thought I've always had some ideas about podcasts, but I've never done a podcast. I don't want to buy a bunch of equipment and find out I don't like it. How could I prototype becoming a podcaster? Well, I know these two really interesting women. You know, I can talk to them they've got this Explore podcast. And I could find out by talking to them, I'm kind of almost doing a little time travel, right? I'm, I'm moving into a future where it looks like people are podcasting. I'm learning what it's about. I'm learning how difficult it is to come up with content week after week after week. And I'm having a little experience of what it might feel like if I were doing it. So I could have conversations. I can actually do an experience. I can shadow somebody for a day. I can shadow a lawyer for a day. and I know what lawyers really do every day, which doesn't turn out to look very much like the law. So shadowing people, having conversations, having little mini experiences. We had a friend we talked about in the book and she really loves Italian food and she really loves Italy. So she thought the most exciting thing to do would be to open a little Italian restaurant, deli in the front end and restaurant in the back. She loved planning the restaurant and she loved buying all the foods and meeting all the vendors. Turns out she hated running a restaurant. So she was really frustrated. We said, well, you know, like, you you could have just prototyped that. You could have prototyped working for a caterer for a while. You could have prototyped working in a restaurant for a while. Our advice is always, you know, set the bar low and clear it. Try little things to see how you like the experience because you'd be surprised. People end up jumping into stuff and then discovering it's not what they thought because they never did any prototyping. So it's a superpower tool in design. It's a superpower tool in life design. Because it's a way of sneaking up on your future. I have lots of stories of people who've either read the book or taken one of our classes, and they have made a major change in their life. They've moved from one career to another. And that's, that's really quite common right now, particularly post pandemic where people, you know, they were home and they realized, you know, I'm just not going to put up with this, this crummy career anymore. I think it's better to try small experiments, little prototypes first, before you go all in, because. It is true that the grass is always greener. When you're looking at somebody else's job, you think, oh, that's so much more interesting than my job. But when you really talk to them and you find out the whole story, sometimes you come to a a different conclusion. So we're just really in favor of people exploring. By the way, the other thing about prototyping is it's prototyping is always out in the world. It's always talking to people, having experiences, it's doing things. Once we had to come up with a real quick story because we were going to go on TV in Canada. Dave and I, and they said, oh, we, we've run out of time. We have to cut your section to just three minutes. You have to do designing your life in three minutes. And we said, we can't do that. We're professors. We take forever to answer a question. And they said, well, then you can't be on the TV show. We said, all right, we'll, we'll come up with an answer. And we did. And the answer is, get curious. What are you curious about? What's it like to do a podcast? What's it like to be an author? Get curious. Talk to people because people are where the information is. Try stuff. That's the prototyping stage. And then tell your story. So get curious. Talk to people. Try stuff. Tell your story. And when you tell your story, not to brag or anything, but just saying, hey, you know, I'm on this journey and I'm exploring these new things. And I'm really excited about potentially changing my job or, or maybe even my career. And here's what I've discovered. When you tell that story, you invite people to offer you ideas for new prototypes and new things you can try. Because the human story is out in the world with other people. And that's where the fun stuff happens.
1: Bill, I love these mindsets that you talk about, right? The bias to action, the be curious, the go out and try stuff. And what you mentioned earlier about having many experiences. I think these are things that Sarah and myself, via the MBA, we really had that safe space to go out and try, talk to people and experience what being in the shoes of being in another career would be like. But I just wanted to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here and and ask you, is there such thing as excessive prototyping? By that, I mean like continuously trying out many experiences and never really settling down. So, you know, in that sense, how do we find that balance between career prototyping in a healthy way testing those ideas and also not being flaky or indecisive when it comes to our career? We'd love yeah. to on that.
0: That's a good question. We teach at Stanford, and Stanford is a research university. And so we do try to base our stuff on research. And a wonderful researcher, a guy named Bill Damon, who wrote a book about adolescence called The Path to Purpose. He did a lot of study on this question of, you know, like, what about people who just trialize of stuff? where they they're kind of always moving? They never settle on anything. And he did a lot of research and he said, you know, consider to divide the world into four kinds of people in, in, the, in terms of this kind of exploration that's a very small percentage, 20% of the folks have, he called them broken. There's something wrong. There's an addiction. But the other three groups were dreamers, dabblers, and doers. And the dreamers, a lot of my students are like, I'm going to work on climate change. I want to work on, you know, equality for everyone. And And their dream, their dream is really big, but their action towards the dream, they don't get any traction. They have a big dream, but they can't get anything done. The dabblers... Uh, Well, this week is climate change. Last week it was income inequality. The next week it's you know systemic racism. The week after that it's save the whales. They never settle on anything, right? To have any impact. And so I think there is there is particularly nowadays. I notice it in the younger students, and I notice it in mid career folks in their twenties. They try lots of different things. Maybe they're even good at it. You know, a lot of my students are pretty smart. They can be good at lots of things, but they don't. But they don't stick with anything. They don't have any persistence. And that's an issue because in our society, it's a pretty fine line between trying lots of things, but moving towards a goal versus just dabbling or dream, right? And not getting anything done. So if you want to be in the doer category, people who get stuff done, it's okay. Particularly nowadays, I think there's a lot more tolerance in your early twenties to try different things or even, you know, be a lawyer for a little while and then go back, and get an MBA and then, and then pivot to something new. That used to be, unheard of, and now it's not viewed as a negative. I think the thing that puts you in the category of a doer, where you're using prototypes effectively and not excessively, is back to what we call, you know, having a compass. We do a very simple exercise in the class and in the book. In 250 to 500 words, write a little paragraph on your work view. What's your theory of work? Why do people work? Okay, then write another essay, 250 to 500 words, on what's your life view? What's the big picture? And what, what research shows is when your life view and your work view are coherent, they match. The reason I work is related to the bigger picture of why, you know, meaning and purpose lives in the world. Maybe you have a spiritual explanation, a non-spiritual, but personal explanation. What is the big picture in the world? What is the universe all about? When those two things are connected, you have something to test your prototypes against. Am I moving closer to my objectives? Am I moving closer to my goal. So we're always moving into the future and it's a little bit unpredictable. But if we have a compass, we can stay on track. And so the question you ask yourself is, are these prototypes leading to some conclusions? I'm doing some introspection. I'm doing some observation of myself. Am I moving closer to a qualitative objective or am I just jumping around and getting lots of data, but I'm not processing it in in any useful way? So you're right, you can over-prototype, but it's the same thing as, you know, Trying lots of stuff but not paying attention to what you're learning.
1: I really like the approach of, you know, having that compass and constantly calibrating yourself back to that vision, that true north. And it's important to have lots of experiences, but also equally important to balance that out with that compass. So that was one of the great tools that I found. Something else that we found very helpful for us are some of these dysfunctional beliefs that you talk Mm -hmm. about. You mentioned a few in designing your life and also in designing your work life as well. And when you talk about dysfunctional beliefs, it's kind of in the context of thoughts that prevent people from finding the career's and the lives that they want so we've actually selected two for today's discussion there were so many that spoke out to us but you know for the experience of time we could only highlight two today but before we deep dive into these beliefs phil could you share with us what the art of reframing is about and why is it important that we reframe
0: oh gosh this is the other like power tool if you remember nothing you know else from this podcast remember that You know, you can prototype anything, you can explore the world through this experimental process called prototyping with intention, and you can reframe anything. So in the design thinking process, you start with empathy, then you define or redefine. And that's the reframing step. Peter Drucker, the famous uh, business guru, has a famous phrase. he There's nothing quite so useless as doing something very well that never needed to be done in the first place. And a lot of times I find students are working on the wrong problem. They're like, I got to figure this out and I have a solution, but I can't get the solution I want. So how do I work on this? It's like, no, 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 step back. What is the actual problem you're working on? And what we find is that almost all problems can be thought about from a different point of view. And the typical reframe is I got a certain problem and I step back one, maybe one layer of abstraction and I restate the problem a different way. So for instance, I was working with somebody and they were saying, well, I, you know, I'm working at this big tech company and big search company here in, this, in Silicon Valley, and I really want to become a director, but there's a freeze on, on promotions and I can't become a director. So Bill, help me. How do I become a director? And I said, well, first of all, that's kind of what we call a gravity problem, because if they aren't making any new directors this week, you can't be one. It's not your, problem. It's not your fault. It's just a circumstance. But why do you want to be a director? Let's step back. Let's reframe. Why do you want to be a director? Well, directors have more influence over the strategy around you. Oh, okay. So you want to have influence over strategy. That's the first tweak frame. Why do you want to have influence over strategy? Well, because if I had influence over strategy, I could organize my team more effectively and be working on things that we think would be really impactful in the company. All right. So you want to be a better manager for your team and you want to lead with more impact. Okay. Well, now we went from, I want to be a director, but I can't be one. So now I'm stuck to, it's really about strategy. And it's really, when you really get down to it, it's about being an effective leader and having impact. Now let's brainstorm a hundred ways to be an effective leader and have impact that have nothing to do with being a director. And what happens is you get freedom. Before I was stuck, can't be a director. I want to be a director. There's nothing I can do. Someone else is in charge. Not me. When I reframe and I realize, no, this is about having impact and being a better leader. There's a hundred things I can do. A hundred things. And I don't need anybody else's permission to become a more effective leader. I don't need anybody else's permission to have more impact. So a lot of times reframing the problem, the goal is freedom and more solution space. So I'm looking to find a way of, of looking at the problem differently so that I can move, I can act. Because, you know, most people complain in their jobs. This gets to the second book about jobs. They complain in their jobs like, well, I don't have the authority to do what I want or my boss doesn't understand something, something, something. They always put the ownership of the problem outside themselves. If only someone else would change, I could have a great job. Well, good luck. You know, if you're waiting for the world to change so you can have a great job. So, our whole idea is giving you freedom, giving you power and authority to move forward in your life. Reframing is one of the power tools that does that.
2: All right, which leads us to getting into the first dysfunctional belief that you and Dave spoke about in the book. And it's on the belief that says, good enough isn't good enough, I want more. Which is, frankly speaking, pretty countercultural in a society that celebrates excellence as well as success. So, Built. How does this dysfunctional belief normally manifest itself and how can we think about reframing it?
0: When I run workshops for mid-career folks in the 30s and 40s and I say, who's unhappy? And they raise their hand. The number one group are very, very successful lawyers. The number two group is very, very successful private equity people, bankers, finance people. And they chase the good, I want more. I want more. I got to have more. Got to have more. Got to have more. I got to have a promotion. Got to get to the top of the pile. Now I'm partner in the law firm. Now I'm managing director of the private equity thing. I'm making lots of money. I'm seven, eight figures of money. And they're miserable. Absolutely miserable. Because they chased kind of a false god, right? They chased money and they chased status and they got it. But then they realized it didn't mean anything. There's so much evidence in positive psychology, which is one of the basis of all the work we do, that once you have enough money, security, whatever, more actually makes you less happy. So if you're pursuing this idea of, you know, whatever I got, it's not good enough. I got to have more, whether that's more status in my community, more money in my community, more authority of my job. There's nothing wrong with being ambitious. There's nothing wrong with wanting to better yourself, but be really careful about what the metrics are because you get what you measure. If you're measuring money, you will get more money, but you won't get more happiness. It's absolutely proven in the psychology of, of happiness that more does not create happiness. And, you know, we're constantly confronted with this idea of being our best selves, perfecting ourselves, somehow moving towards some version of ourselves, which is a singular best. And um, Dave and I have a, an expression, the singular best gets in the way of the many, many possible betters. You should always be, you know, be ambitious and try to improve yourself. In fact, one of the intrinsic motivations of human beings is mastery. We want to get better at well, what we do, but we should do it for the intrinsic motivation, not for the extrinsic reward of money or power or prestige in our communities, because there's tons of evidence that that is a negative when it comes to personal happiness. So good enough is good enough for now. You'll notice in the book, we say set the bar low, good enough for now. Because if you don't savor what you've got in the moment, if you're not in the present moment enjoying what you have, if all you're thinking about is, but I need more, but I need more. You never reach a state you know, of being fully human. There's an old Zen expression, if you can't find enlightenment right where you are, where do you expect to find it? So it's now when we're going to be happy, not sometime in the future.
2: I have to say, Bill, that I'm so guilty of this because um just generally in life, you know, Janice and myself, we're people who are, you know, high achievers, always wanting to improve, mastery, all of these things that you speak about. And I can't help but also find myself in the boat where, you know, even if something is going extremely well and life is going great, I'm enjoying what I'm doing, things are going good, but there is this nagging thought at the back of my mind, which sometimes tells me, oh, what can I do better? Or how can it be improved? How can this experience be be made even sweeter? And it just prevents me from enjoying the here and the now. And so this reframe is just so pivotal because it definitely talks about setting the bar low. So maybe just elaborate a little bit more about both the setting the bar low method, as well as the good work journal that you spoke about in the book.
0: Sure. But let me, let me, I'm going to turn the tables here and ask you a question. That little voice in your head that's saying, Yeah, to do more, you gotta do more. Where's that voice come from? Is that your voice? Is that your mom or dad's voice? Is that the, the society saying, oh, come on, Sarah, do better, do better, do better. I mean, I'm not arguing that you shouldn't try to, you know, master your subjects and become good at things and maybe even continue to learn and, and grow. But examine where those little voices come from, because sometimes it comes from a bad place, right? You know, I was talking to a person I was coaching and similar thing. He was saying, you know, I've got this voice in my head and it's always says more and more and more. And I said, who's that voice? This is my dad. My dad told me I had to to do more. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't working hard. I said, well, have you resolved that, you know, with your father yet? He said, no, my dad died 20 years ago. (laughs) He said, really? So you're still reacting to this voice from 20 years ago. So it's okay to be intentional. And one of the intentions that, that we notice is that when, in positive psychology, if you spend some time at the end of every day doing a little journaling, if we have a the good work journal in the book about work and a good time journal, it, which is a classic sort of journaling, what your reality is what you pay attention to. So if you start paying attention to some positive things in your life, the research says after six to eight weeks of journaling, you will start to notice, oh, my mood is a little better. I'm starting to notice that there's some challenging things happen during the week, some things that happen maybe that I I didn't like during the week. But I did notice these other things that happened that were very positive. So I'm going to journal about positive experiences, looking for positive things. There's an old expression in psychology, we don't see what we're looking at. We only see what we're looking for. Our brain organizes its inquiry around certain subjects. So if you change the subject to positive the impact versus I notice all the negative things right? I'm constantly scrolling through my feed and there's a war in the Ukraine and there's a financial crisis and there's no wheat being grown in the world. I mean, if I just constantly pay attention to the negatives, I'll have this background of negative energy in my life. If I pay attention to some positive, if I journal, you know, five minutes. And we, we try to, I don't like journaling because it just takes up too much time. So we may like put in one thing that happens, check a box. Did it give you energy? Did it give you, put you into flow? Simple as we could make it, but it's it's a really powerful tool. Again, proven in the positive psychology realm to increase your sense of well-being and happiness. And it's the same thing with the set the bar low method. We know that if you want to make a, a change in your behavior, either eliminate a negative behavior or start a positive behavior. Let's say you want to start exercising. If you say, "I've decided I'm going to run a marathon," I'm like, "Great!" But the the data says that most people will fail. If you say someday, I'd like to run a marathon, but this week, I just want to get to 5,000 steps. I do that for two weeks. I say, I wonder if I could get to 7,500 steps, check my phone and been pretty good. 10,000 steps, get to 10,000, 12,000 steps. Now, maybe I could run a 5K or walk a 5K and then I could run a 5K. So we know that if you want to change behavior, you have to do it in small steps. And so that's the set, the Barlow method. And otherwise, behaviors change never occurs. And it's hard to change a habit or it's hard to establish a new habit. It really is. So we're just trying to give people a simple way of of learning a kind of complicated process in psychology called guided mastery. Came from the work of Albert Bandura. It's in our book. It's in David Kelly's book on creative confidence as well.
2: And well, you've broken that down into the set bar low method, which essentially talks about, you know, bringing the big goal into more bite size and having more and measuring incremental successes, as well as on Good Work Journal, which basically talks about even just having gratitude for the little things that we do. And so the second dysfunctional belief that we also wanted to explore with you, Bill, is one that we're sure many of our listeners would resonate with. Um, Janice and I certainly spoke about it when we read about it in the book, which is the belief that my problems at work are insurmountable. And I'm totally stuck at where I am. So tell us, how does this dysfunctional belief normally manifest itself? And how also can we reframe it? Because this one is a real one, I got to say, Bill.
0: Oh, no, it's absolutely real. And again, I want to be super respectful. You know, many, many people have to work in the world. I mean, very few people have enough money that never have to work. And so work can either be some place where you learn and explore and it's joyful and, and you feel like you're contributing or work can be just a drag and, and just a terrible thing. And people have to work for lots and lots of reasons in jobs that maybe aren't the jobs that, you know, are the best fit for them. So let's be realistic. That's true. People are in some ways financially stuck inside an organization, maybe that they don't enjoy, and it's not possible to move to a different organization right away. Okay. So if you're stuck, what do you do? Well, designers don't like being stuck. That's not a good thing to be. It's a negative feeling. And actually, when you're in a stuck state of mind... Research shows that you're not very good at brainstorming or coming up with alternatives. So, we try to give people really simple ways to get unstuck. You know, a lot of times people are stuck on some theoretical problem when really there's a minimum actionable problem. There's a problem that you can actually take action on, but you've created a, a bigger problem than you need it to be. So, the reframe for, you know, my job sucks and I hate it, but I'm stuck. I'm stuck. There's nothing I can do. We've got a bunch of different ways you can reframe the job, but the first thing is to sort of reframe in your approach this notion that you're stuck. You're never stuck. Mm. All designs have constraints. I don't care if you're a millionaire, you have constraints. I've, I've met many millionaires who feel like they're totally stuck and they can't change and there's nothing they can do. And I've met people who are making minimum wage and they think they they have lots of freedom to make choice. Victor Frankel, Frankl, who was the Jewish doctor who was imprisoned in the concentration camps in World War II, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, in which he said, the fundamental thing that makes us human is our ability to choose. Even in the most horrible situation, a Nazi concentration camp, he chose to stay and administer, because he was a, a doctor, to the people in the camp to help them, even though he knew that that would probably condemn him to death. That choice made him human. Even in horrible constraints, you have a choice. So, if you're in a job and you don't like your job, you don't like your boss, you don't like something's going on, what choices can you make? You can still make the choice to get better at what you do. You can still make the choice to have good relationships with the other people that you're working with. And you can still make the choice to take what you're supposed to do, but do it in a way that makes you feel like you have autonomy. Psychologists have said humans are strange. We have these things called intrinsic motivations. The motivation for autonomy, the motivation for relatedness, working together, and the motivation for competence, mastery, to get better at things. We call it the arc of your career, autonomy, relatedness, and competence. You don't need anybody's permission to get better at your job. You don't need anybody's permission to create great relationships on your job. You don't need anybody else's permission to do your work the way that you think it needs to be done, the best that you know how to do it. And those are all completely under your control. And they make a bad job better because now you're not a victim, you're an agent in your life. And by the way, what you'll discover is as you increase your mastery and increase your relationships and the connections you have with others, new opportunities will arise because a person with self-efficacy, a person who's acting as their own agent is a little brighter and a little shinier than all the other victims. And you will find you know, that people will be attracted to that and your job will change. Or you'll be offered new jobs. Or your network of people who know you as a positive person will create opportunities for you in other organizations. It happens all the time. You are always the agent in your life. You never have to be the victim. And look, if Viktor Frankl can be an agent in a concentration camp, you can be an agent in your crummy job as an accountant or a, you know, whatever. It's a mindset, right, of bias to action and curiosity.
1: And thank you so much, Bill, for sharing that super important reminder of how we do have the autonomy to be the agents of our lives and to be able to take charge and control of our own lives as well. And great shout out on on the book. It's one of my all-time favorite books. So really happy that you mentioned that. We actually do want to deep dive on the engagement energy map. So this was also something that I recently heard you discuss on Rachel, co-founder of Love Bonito, her Rage Reflect session. And it was a very engaging and actionable bit. And one of my key takeaways from that session is actually to manage your energy and not your time and to kind of understand how you can follow your flow and to have that recharge you. So we want to hear all about this energy engagement tool. How can we utilize it in our day-to-day life Outside of work, inside of work, how can we use that to just improve our lives? And we understand you also would uh, like to screen share and show our audience as well how they can use it. So we're going to be releasing a short video snippet, especially for our audience of the Explore This podcast, so they can also take a look.
0: And it's actually a very practical tool, but it comes from a kind of a big, more abstract idea. Our experience of life is what we pay attention to. What we pay attention to is what we put our energy against. And I can change how you experience your week by shifting from time management to energy management. And this takes just a little bit of a picture because that's why I'm going to show some slides because it's a little tool that's kind of like a graph. So for those of you who can't see it, I'll, I'll explain what the slides say or look at what they have on them for the graphic. And we're just saying that energy is both the physical and mental energy, the mental strength that allows you to do things. And what we're looking for is states of flow, when in our Daily work life or in a regular life, do we have these states of flow? And flow is being completely involved in an activity for its own sake. Your ego falls away, time flies, every action is followed inevitably from the previous one. It's like playing jazz. Flow is the source of mental energy. And that comes from the psychologist who discovered the state of flow called Mihaly on And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna say, how could we map in a week what gives us energy? And what drains us? What makes us exhausted? And how is our energy level, level related to this idea of flow? So we come up with a very simple graph. And for those of you who can see it, there's a horizontal bars time, and that's really a week from your Monday to your Sunday or however you want to do your week. I do Monday to Sunday. And then if I do some kind of activity and I just look at my calendar and I pull up all my activities that I do every week, the test is when I'm done with that activity, Am I just drained and exhausted because it was a negative activity? Or am I energized and more excited because the activity actually gave me energy? Now, I could be tired at the end of the activity. That's not the same thing as not being energetic. And I might be mad at the end of something, but that's not the same thing as being energetic. This is one of those things where I got to really know myself and I've got to assess it. So then I just create a bar chart for every day. And I'll show you in mine, it was like, Well, you know, it's pretty straightforward. I I have an art class on Monday. I do a budget meeting, office hours, faculty meetings. I just put it all down. And the art class is a really high energy, wonderful experience. The budgeting meeting's always negative. I love my office hours for students. That's a positive experience. And on and on and on. You lay out your week. And normally what I do is I just tell people, go look at your calendar, put down all the things that you do repetitively every week. And assess whether they're high or low energy. Or they could be in the middle. Like the faculty meeting on this chart is in the middle. Sometimes it's a good meeting and we're very interesting. And sometimes you just talk about logistics and budgets and stuff. And it's boring and it's a waste of time. I lay it all out. And then that's step one. What do you, what do you notice? This is step two. Well, I noticed that my art class is a total flow state. I love art class. It's fantastic. It's a figure drawing class. So I go on Monday nights. And for three hours, we draw nudes. Naked people stand on stage and we draw them. It's amazing. It's so much fun. It's really hard, by the way, to draw people. <laughs> and that's why I'm studying it. And teaching is a flow state. I love being in the state of flow when I'm teaching and interacting with students, particularly now that we're live again. It's so much better. I noticed that the budget meeting was kind of annoying and that I was coaching my master students. We have no control over who becomes an undergraduate at Stanford. That's all handled by general admissions. But in the graduate program, we let our grad- We we pick them. And I'm coaching them on their thesis projects, and it was a negative, and that seemed odd to me. It shouldn't be a positive. I like these students, but it came out negative. So put your energy map out Monday through Sunday. Assess what do you notice? Some flow states, some other states. Annoying, confusing, I'm not sure. And then you say, okay, here's the set, the Barlow method. That's the smallest change I can make to improve my energy and what feels accessible. And there's a bunch of techniques that you can change the location of something. Sometimes just moving from some place to someplace else changes the energy. You can resequence activities. Sometimes it's just a matter of surrounding a negative with two positives. And then you forget it. You can change who you're interacting with because some people are, are negative. You can combine two for one. You can time box things. If you've got a negative thing, just put it in a time box so you can control it. Reprioritize, reframe, or compromise and defer. So what I did is I said, well... I can move the budget meeting, which I have to do. It's my job. I can move it between two positives, walking and office hours, and then I'll forget it. There's a thing in psychology called the best last effect. In any experience, you will only remember the peak of the experience and the last thing that happened. You can use the best last effect to put something really great at the end of the week, something amazing in the middle of the week, and the other negatives will sort of disappear from your memory. I changed the location. This is a classic. I was coaching my students in the studio, but it was too noisy and too busy. And I wanted to have a really one-on-one connection. Now I've moved it over to the patio outside of the studio and I buy them a coffee before we have the meetings. I buy the coffee in order to raise the status of the students so that they feel more comfortable talking about their projects with me. Now that meeting is fantastic because I changed the location and I changed the way we do it. Date night is amazing. I just double down on date night. I get more flow. That's, you know, a chance to connect with my wife. House cleaning and stuff I do on Saturdays instead of Sundays so that I don't end the week with a bummer of house cleaning. And I just compromised and deferred the fact that the faculty meeting is not under my control. But if I decide that it's okay that it's mediocre, that's different than letting it bug me all the time. So I changed four things. And now my week is incredibly energetic. The goal is if I ask you, hey, Sarah, how's your week go? You should be able to say, it was a great week. I remember this one thing we did on Wednesday, this amazing thing we did, you know, just before we left the office, or I had this fantastic interview, and I always schedule those on the last thing I do on Fridays because I know that's going to be high energy. And when people do the shift from trying to time manage to energy manage, it's amazing. They have a huge flip. Manage energy, not time, gives you a better sense of your engagement. What are you paying attention to? What are you spending energy on? And also, it changes your work-life balance, your sense of balance. Flow is a great indicator that you're engaged. Energy and engagement and meaning are correlated. If at the end of the week you say it was a great week, it was high energy, I really enjoyed most of the things I did. The stuff I remember was really positive. After, you know, six to eight weeks, which is about the time it takes to make a behavior shift, you're going to notice that you feel like your work is more meaningful. That's, that's basically it. The shift is, is from thinking about, why am I so busy all the time? Why am I always late for meetings? Saying the stuff I spend time on, that I'm intentional about my energy, turns out to change the way I experience my week. And when I made that shift, once again, what's the goal? Freedom and self-authoring. I'm now making the week I want, not letting the week happen to me. I'm creating the week that I want and I'm engaged in the things that I want to spend my time and energy on.
1: I think what was really eye-opening for me was not only trying to identify my flow state activities or my energy giving activities, recording the podcast, speaking to inspiring people and People who provoke us to think differently, such as yourself, definitely gives us energy. But also knowing what drains us and how we can time box around it or just reprioritize, shift our mindset around it has also been super eye-opening as well. So the final question that we have for you, Bill, you've given us a lot of advice. You've shared a lot of your personal life advice and you know ways to rethink our careers in the books that you have written. But I'm actually curious to know, what is the best career advice that you personally find yourself going back to time and time again that you could share with our audience?
0: Well, oh, that's a good question. Well, the best piece of career advice I ever got, which I got when I was brand new young manager working in the toy company, was probably from the best boss I ever had. And he said, People will never remember what you said to them, but they'll always remember how you make them feel. So when you're managing people, it's not about telling them what to do. It's about making them feel like they're part of the team and what they're doing is important. So that was the best piece of management advice I ever got. And I got it very beginning of my career. I'd say the best piece of advice or the thing that I go back to all the time from the designing your life, you know, set of tools and ideas is... It's strange that I'm a teacher and that I do public speaking and things because I'm actually a very shy person. I was a very shy child and it's very, very, very shy child. And, and it was hard for me when I first started teaching even to just, you know, connect with people. So one piece of advice is just because you're shy doesn't mean you can't do any whatever you want to do. It just takes a lot of work and practice. But the real thing that I learned from the DOL stuff is that the answer to all of the questions you have, And you don't know, and you don't have any data, you know, because it's about some future or something that you want. I used to just sit and think and worry and wonder and make lists and try to figure stuff out. And that never worked. The answer's in the world of people. Even when you're just happy and everything's going well, the answer for what's next is in the world with people, because everything occurs in this transaction between people and their ideas and what they want and what they need and how they can help you and how you can help them. And so if you just get curious, talk to people and then try stuff, you know, take some initiative and to keep telling your story, you'll be surprised. The really good stuff that's happened in my life, I didn't plan it. It was just lucky. I met somebody who knew somebody who said, "Oh, you know, what about this opportunity over here? Or, I was talking to a friend who said, you know, yeah, and I was just talking to this other guy, you should talk to him. And so being open to the world, bringing opportunities to you and to paying it forward by helping other people who are on their journey, that's the good stuff. And so that's my advice, the answers in the world with people, go talk to them.
2: Well, Bill, you have just summarized at this entire Brilliant and insightful episode with these four lines: get curious, talk to people, try stuff, as well as tell your story. And so we're so grateful for your time on the podcast. But just before we release you, Bill, first <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: nice question for you that we'd like to ask all our guests at the end of every episode. And our question for you is: What is the one thing that you would like to explore more? Often?
0: Oh well, you know my next coming career change or the change that I'm in the process of is I've always been an artist you know I've always drawn and painted and drawn and and made things and design was a great way to have a career doing that because I had no idea you could just do that right and people would pay you to be a crazy designer but um, I've got a studio about four blocks from the house now and I spend as much time as I can in fact like, after this I'll probably go down to the studio because I think that art Art asks the really big question, you know, what is beauty? How can we show the world in a beautiful way? And so for me, the next big question is, can Bill be an artist? And I don't see anybody telling me I can't. I'm not saying anyone's going to like what I do, but. Um,
2: <laughs> it's something you're prototyping and experiencing.
0: I'm pro- I am absolutely prototyping. What are the rules about being an artist? As far as I can tell, there aren't any. You can just go do it.
2: And the last question we have for you, Bill, is where can all guests find you?
0: We have a, a website called designingyour.life, and that's our website. We've got a blog post. We've got stuff that we've done. We'll put links to this podcast up there. It talks about a bunch of things. We've got a coaching program going now. We've got a big coaching program going in China. I'm going to be starting an institute in Singapore shortly. So lots of things that are going on, and you can find out all about it there.
2: All right. Thank you so much, Bill, for your time this morning or this evening for us. We can't wait to share this episode with our listeners. And most importantly, if you are our listener tuning into this episode with Bill, we hope you check out the book, Designing Your Life as well as Designing Your Work Life. And we'd love to hear more about how you have been experimenting, prototyping, trying out the energy map that Bill has suggested as well. And so on that note, Bill, thank you so much for your time today.
0: You're welcome. It's been a lot of fun talking with you.
2: If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends.
1: We'd love to hear from you, so you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E, this podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then!